Hello, my Rebels. Did you see the news? According to Canada's TV and radio stations, up to 200 radio stations are about to go out of business and 40 TV stations too. Now, don't cheer. I hear the cheering. Don't cheer because those are people who have to get another job. And I know there's a million waiters and shopkeepers and normal people who have to get a job too, but let's not delight in other people's misery. But of course, these radio and TV stations are demanding a government bailout again. I'll take you through their begging letter. But first, let me invite you to become a subscriber to Rebel News Plus. It's eight bucks a month. And it's something that these other TV and radio stations refuse to do because I don't think they have a connection with their viewers. And they've decided it's easier to ask for money directly from Trudeau than to try and convince viewers one at a time. We take the opposite point of view. We don't bother asking Trudeau for money. That would compromise our ethics and our independence. So we ask you. So here's me asking. Go to rebelnews.com, click on subscribe. It's eight bucks a month or 80 for the whole year. And it helps keep us strong and independent. Okay, here's the podcast. Tonight, TV and radio stations you don't listen to are demanding money from you anyways through a Trudeau bailout, just like the newspapers got. It's August 27th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon yeah. consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Radio and TV news, guessing it depends on who you're listening to. There are some voices out there on the CBC that I don't just mistrust. I know in my bones they are active deceivers, that they are not the media at all in the Greek root of that word, media, the middleman, to simply pass on to you what is happening in the world without a filter. No, they are not about information, they're about disinformation. <laughs> Here's a CNN example just from the other day. Violent riots and arson in the Wisconsin city of Kenosha, torching the place, and CNN says it's a mostly peaceful protest while the reporter is literally standing in front of a riot. We'll talk more about that video clip later today with Joel Pollack, but that's what I mean by misinformation. But my point is, I'm guessing that the past 10 or 20 years has taught you that you just can't trust the media, or as I call it, the media party, because it sort of travels in a pack. I remember growing up as a kid, this will date me, tell you how old I am. We lived outside the city of Calgary, so we didn't have cable, which back then was only about a dozen channels anyways. So we just had three channels that you could get over the air. Back then it meant the CBC, obviously, and two private channels, that's it. Three TV channels, imagine that narrow bandwidth of opinion. Now, the growth of talk radio in the 1990s really began to open up the conversation. It let people talk back for the first time. It was a huge U.S. phenomenon, talk radio. Canada's CRTC never really let talk radio flourish in Canada. They shut down any American voices pretty quickly that were too rambunctious by threatening any Canadian radio station that allowed too much freedom on their airwaves. They got rid of Dr. Laura. They got rid of uh, Howard Stern, obviously. Um, but still, it made a difference. There was a time when talk radio across Canada was actually mainly conservative. It's hard to believe now. It's a place conservatives could go in a way that TV would never let 
right of center voices in. There was a time when newspapers allowed a diversity of voices too, but that's when you had some competitors. In big cities, you sometimes had several newspapers. The idea of them taking money from the government was unthinkable. Yeah, good times, eh? Those were the days. Now it's the worst of all worlds. Post media has a near monopoly in English Canada, and they're the biggest welfare case in the newspaper world too. Obviously, the CBC is bigger than ever, and now has more people in the news business at the CBC than the rest of the Canadian news business combined. And obviously, it's more partisan than ever. I don't even have to tell you this. The idea that the CBC's Ottawa politics reporter would sue the Conservative Party in her own name in the middle of the election while still leading the coverage of that election and that party is so shocking to normal people. The fact that it was surely approved by a dozen senior managers at the CBC and surely approved by the Liberal government on the sly shows just how far the media has tilted, not just to the left, but against the common sense of their viewers. But like I say, just like conservatives and skeptics fled to talk radio in the 1990s, they fled to alternative sources on the internet today. We at Rebel News are the biggest independent media company in Canada, not because we're technologically the best or have the biggest staff. We, we still have plenty of amateur moments, to be candid. But we're number one because we're offering the other side of the story. We're not regulated by the CRTC. You know, on, on Sunday night, we competed head-to-head -head with Rosemary Barton and her massive staff and massive budget. When the Conservatives chose her new party leader, just me, Sheila Gunn-Reed, and our producer, Justin, just the three of us, it was pretty low-tech, we managed to get over 100,000 viewers that night. CBC got about 200,000 that night, and then over the course of the week, it grew past 300,000. But that night... We had 50% the number of viewers they had. They had 40 staff. They have a huge budget, resources we just didn't have. And yet, people watched us. Because really, what conservative would go to Rosemary Barton and the CBC for news about the conservatives? I would go to Rosemary Barton for news about her lawsuit against the conservatives. She's an expert in that. I'd actually like to ask her a fair number of questions about that. Whose idea was it to sue the Conservatives? How long did she know she was going to be suing the Conservatives before she revealed it to the public? And during that period of time, what interviews did she do with Conservatives? What promises did she make, etc.? When she was holding that new secret from them? What conversations did she have with the Liberal Party about organizing her lawsuit? So yeah, I am actually quite interested in Rosemary Barton's opinions about the Conservatives, but the idea of trusting her to tell me the straight news? Oh my God, I'm not the only one who feels this way, by the way. As you can see, the CBC blocked their viewers from making any comments about their broadcast that night. Just blocked it, just banned it. Why? Well, of course, because they know viewers despise the CBC and their bias, and maybe more than a few would ask about Rosemary Barton's disgraceful, disqualifying lawsuit. Our viewers were the best part of our show, and they actually paid for our show through their voluntary super chat donations, that's what it's called. CBC doesn't need to do that, though. They just take your money through your taxes, and if you don't pay your taxes to the CBC, you go to jail. It's not just the CBC, though. It's all of the broadcasters in Canada. They're also hyper-regulated, other than banks and um, airlines and tobacco companies. I don't think anything's more regulated in Canada than a CRTC-dominated broadcaster. What, what channels are offered, at what price, to whom, on what terms, all of that stuff. And in return, these companies get tremendous protection from the government. Mainly, their, their competitors are kept out. Like Sun News was killed by the CRTC, and certainly Fox News wouldn't be allowed up here. Um, 
any competitor would be stopped if it didn't toe the line. And remember, many of these TV channels aren't just broadcasters. They own cable companies, they own cell phone companies, internet companies, so they're super regulated. And they obviously care much more about cell phone money and cable and internet money than any news channel. I mean, there's just so much more money on the internet side. So they basically do whatever Justin Trudeau wants in their news stations, and they get taken care of in return which is why normal people just don't watch them anymore for news. We find our own news that's more trustworthy than CBC, CTV, Global, whatever. Global TV is truly worse than the CBC in many ways, and they have a special hatred for us at The Rebel, I don't know why. Global News literally cheered on the, the left-wing activist who punched our Sheila Gunn-Reed in the face during a women's march back in 2017. They wouldn't even call Sheila a reporter. It was so gross. They did the same thing again recently when David Menzies was attacked just a few weeks ago. Um, I think that was in Peterborough, uh, or sorry, Kingston. Uh, Global News is bizarre and weird. They're even more pro-Trudeau than the CBC. They're trying to get something from Trudeau. I don't know it, what it is, but they're so weird these days. And my point in all this is, if you chase Trudeau for bailout money, you'll wind up tailoring your news coverage for him alone. And you'll leave behind millions of Canadians who really don't want to hear about Trudeau or his propaganda, or they just want journalists to be independent. Um, we all know we're being poorly served here by TV and radio in Canada. Why did a U.S. news magazine have to break the news in our last election about Trudeau's blackface photos? Because the Canadian media, who all had the photos and videos, they refused to do it. It was incredible. The media party all knew. They all had those photos and videos, but they were all in it together with their friend and paymaster, Justin Trudeau. In fact, when an American news source broke the story, the media party in Canada threw more reporters at grilling the Vancouver guy who passed the news on to an American journalist. They spent more time grilling that guy than grilling Trudeau himself. The media was furious that Canadians dared to go around the Canadian media gatekeepers. Yeah, well, listen, you chose your North Star, Trudeau. Even the National Post is getting really weird because of their Trudeau cash. They've started a series that I've dubbed Tucker Carlson watch. You can't even get Fox News with Tucker Carlson in Canada unless you specially order it. CNN's in basic cable, but the National Post is running Hillary Clinton-style fact checks on Tucker Carlson in Canada. Nobody, what, what are you doing? From a conservative newspaper? No, not really. From a newspaper that takes 140 grand a week from Trudeau. That's why. You see what I mean? Which brings me to today's news. Check out this. This is from Global News. Here's their headline. Hundreds of Canadian radio TV stations could close uh, due to the coronavirus. Uh, is that why? Hey, are you guys okay? Are all you media personalities over there? Are you, do you need a tissue or something? You want to take a moment? Here's CTV with the same news. They say, media study says hundreds of Canadian radio stations, TV outlets risk closure. Um, are, you, are you guys okay? CTV, those are the people who said that Hockey players in Canada are by nature racist. I think it struck a nerve because I'm told he's a Canadian icon and he's a symbol of the great sport of hockey, which is the sport that unites us across this country. And that narrative is the one that strikes a nerve with me because I don't worship at the, the altar of hockey. I never have. And maybe it's because of where I grew up, but there's, there's a, and going to a couple different universities, there's a certain type of person in my mind, in my experience, who does. And they all tended to be white boys who weren't, um, let's say, very nice, 
They were not generally thoughtful. They were often bullies. Uh, their parents were able to afford to put them, you know, spend $5,000 a year on minor hockey instead of $5,000, a lot of money. You could do other things besides spending your time in an arena. You could go on a trip and learn about the world, see other things, eh? You know, like it's, it, the place is a, the world is a big place. Maybe get tight out of that bubble. And for me, Don Cherry is the walking and talking representative of that type. You, I'm sure you guys might be going out of business. It's really, really sad. By the way, um, <laughs> all these stations reporting this news, they paid for this. I'll tell you in a second where this news is coming from. They're not disclosing that in their headlines, are they? Hundreds of Canadian radio stations, TV outlets risk closure, says media study. 40 local television outlets, 200 Canadian radio stations could close in the next three years. Now, I know, calm down, there's a lot of cheering going on. CBC writes this with some delight because they'll be the last people standing because, of course, they live completely off the government teat, $1.5 billion a year from Trudeau. They could survive, if they please, literally just one single viewer, Justin Trudeau himself. They don't care what the audience wants. They're laughing here. Now, before I read to you from this new study paid for by these same media companies complaining about it, let me first say the obvious. Who cares? I'm not actually happy that these people will be canceled. Even the ones who want you and me to be canceled, the ones who call you and me racist, or say that we deserve to be assaulted like David and Sheila were. I mean, look, everyone's got to earn a living. It's just tough to care about TV personalities being canceled when they love to cancel other people. It's like Wendy Mesley, the disgraced former broadcaster at the CBC. She made a living calling people racist falsely. Federal government cut your funding for research. Uh, Rebel Media came in and did a crowdfunding uh, project for you, raised about $200,000. Mm -hmm. um, after Charlottesville uh, and the riots, the protests there, uh, many people cut ties with Rebel Media, including the Conservative leader Andrew Scheer, saying mm -hmm. that it could be seen as giving hate groups a platform. Um, you still go on there, so I'm wondering why do you go on Rebel Media after, after Charlottesville? You don't think we should talk to people on the right? <laughs> Turns out it was all projection again and again. When the cameras were off, Wendy Mesley used the N-word to describe black people. And the CBC knew she would use this word in meetings at the CBC again and again. And it was cool with them. It was only when her misconduct leaked that she was finally fired. So the CBC didn't care about the fact she was using the N-word. They were just cared but the fact that it leaked to the public, they were embarrassed. Same thing with Global News. They call everybody to the right of Trudeau racist. Well, looky, looky, look at this news just today. According to this story, Troy Reed, the boss of Global News, simply fires visible minority journalists who complain about racism at Global News. At least the CBC fired the racist. Troy Reed, the VP of Global News, fired the victims of racism. So I guess he got rid of the racism because he got rid of the minorities, huh? I don't know. Um, he'll probably get away with it, just like Trudeau gets away with blackface. But back to the news today. So this study, paid for by these broadcasters, shows that 40 television outlets and 200 radio stations could be gone. That's what the Canadian Association of Broadcasters. And again, to which I say, look, these folks have lived off a government monopoly for decades. It has been illegal to compete with them uh, you had to listen to them, you were forced to, so they took their customers for granted. I mean, what are you going to do, listen to someone else? Ha ha, you can't, it won't work. That's the argument uh, when I was a kid watching the three channels, but the argument started to fall apart a little bit when satellite radio became a thing. 
And now that argument's just dust, now that we have a thousand radio and TV stations in our hand, in our cell phone. Listen to anything, watch anything, anytime, anywhere, there's Wi-Fi or cell phone service. You know, most of the people who watch our Rebel videos are watching on their phones. Isn't that amazing? So why would people watch our stuff? More than a half a billion views on YouTube alone. Um, but why are they abandoning the government-regulated media, according to this report? Well, the question sort of answers itself, doesn't it? But back to the thesis, so some companies are going to shut down. Let me ask the what? 30%, 50%, 70% of Canadian restaurants that will not survive this pandemic lockdown. Let me ask them if they care about some dilettantes and radio and TV overpaid pompous prats. Let me ask them if they care. Let me ask the mom and pop shops being shut down. Uh, well, Jeff Bezos just hit $200 billion. Congratulations. He's the first human ever to hit $200 because the pandemic has made people stop shopping in their communities because the government won't let them. So people just order stuff from China via this guy. Now he's worth $200 billion. So yeah, um, I do care about your jobs, you overpaid soft hands TV star. Sure, I care. But can you please get in line? Because there's about a million other people who lost their jobs because of the government's lockdown that I care about more than you. People who didn't live off the government's regulatory largesse in the first place. Working class people who do real things, not just blather for a living. Sure, I care that the screeching woman from the social is in jeopardy. And they all tended to be white boys who weren't, um, let's say, very nice. Yes, I deeply care about her and her hundred thousand, two, three, four hundred thousand dollar a job. She's about millionth in line, though, for uh, the who do I care about department. And the hilarious thing about this new study, bought and paid for by these same TV and radio stations, by the way, so you know it's independent and unbiased. I can't even believe this. They put this in print. They actually blame the pandemic. I'm not kidding. You know, Netflix, Disney Plus, they've all had record-breaking months since March because everyone's locked at home watching more TV than ever. Some, you know, same reason Amazon and Apple are at record heights. You know, Apple's the first $2 trillion company by market capitalization. Uh, Amazon's doubled its wealth since the pandemic because people are shut down. They're just clicking away on their phones. So um, Disney, Netflix, record uh, revenues, but Canada's TV and radio companies are claiming that the pandemic is killing them. You little liars. It's what could have saved you if you actually gave viewers what they wanted. People are so hungry for stuff. Here's the, the cover of this report that was bought by the TV and radio companies. There are some accidentally honest parts to it, I admit. Look at this. In the 21st century, the media market has changed, and consumers choose from content in a relevant market that includes far more than just local or national broadcasters. Yeah, that's code for people can't be forced to watch us now. They're free now, not trapped like I was growing up with the three channels. Um, and these broadcasters wish they could stop that. I'll read some more. One result of that increased competition is that traditional advertising-based media no longer grow in tandem with general economic indicators, a danger signal for the future of those media. <laughs> a, a, a danger signal? You know, YouTube has demonetized us for political reasons. They barely allow any ads on us because we're conservatives. So we survive because our audience chooses to give us money. You, if you're watching this, are giving us $8 a month for a subscription, thank you. We crowdfund all the time. The media party knows that would never work for them because they antagonize their viewers and they suck up to power. Do you think the CBC could live off the voluntary support of Canadians? 
if you don't, don't you think that's a problem? And if you do, I mean, I laugh at you if you think that, but hey, I'm glad you're so confident. Why don't we give it a try? I mean, these are people who are so scared of their own viewers, they ban comments on their own YouTube channels. But sure, yeah, those people you banned would voluntarily chip in to be abused by Rosemary Barton or that racist Wendy Mensley or that awful hockey defamer on CTV. Look, I'm not going to go through this whole whining document. I'll just get straight to the part that's about you. Not about what you care about, not what you'd actually like to listen to or watch. These broadcasters don't actually talk about that for one second in this huge begging letter. They only talk about the reason they care about you, your money. They know they can't convince you to give it to them in subscriptions or crowdfunding, so they're going straight to Justin Trudeau to beg him to wring it out of you. Here, I'll read a bit. To start the discussion, here are three possible suggested actions. Given the urgency of the situation, two of the three need to be done almost immediately, and the third needs to start almost immediately, but will likely have a 12-month time frame. Number one. First, we have seen that current federal government pandemic economic assistance programs might cover only part of the monthly revenue losses hitting private radio and private conventional television. Additional forms of assistance should be devised and implemented as quickly as possible because those local stations are an important and in some cases the only source of local news. So they want immediate money before Parliament can resume because they deserve it. Certainly more than any blue-collar worker, more than any waitress or clerk does. Because they're better than you, don't you know? Second, starting immediately, right now, and to cover at least the next two broadcast fiscal years. Oh, okay. There must be regulatory relief for private radio and television stations to recognize the impact of the economic disruption on their ability to fulfill certain conditions of license and to recognize the need for modifications in operating arrangements that might help to realize cost savings. So these folks want fewer regulations on them. And hey, I agree. But you know, it was journalists from these same TV and radio stations that, for example, voted to ban Rebel News and other journalists from press galleries. So they like re regulations for the people they hate. The CRTC, it was them who banned Sun News. So you see, these radio stations and TV stations, they want regulations that they have to live under, lessened, weakened, but they want more protections from their competitors and they personally ban competitors like us. It goes on, I'm not gonna bore you, I just want you to know that Canada's official journalists don't even care about what you think anymore. They know they've lost you, not just on the news side, but on the entertainment side. You can count Canadian TV successes on one hand's fingers, and each of those was the result of massive government subsidies. People just don't care about CanCon anymore. Remember that phrase, Canadian content? People watch what they want to watch. They listen to what they want to listen to. They don't care where people are from. You can't force people to listen to official things anymore. Kids these days don't even know what you're talking about if you talk about that. The irony is that Canadians have actually always been very successful in the media. I'd say disproportionately successful, but usually only after leaving the country. Perhaps the most successful comedy show in America is Saturday Night Live, run for decades by a Canadian named Lorne Michaels. How many Hollywood stars are from Canada who come up once in a while to Toronto or Vancouver to shoot a film in return for tax credits that we throw at them, and then they head right back on to L.A. This report is a last wheezy gasp by the media party, not to improve their product. They don't even talk about that. Not to appeal to their viewers. That, that ship has sailed. Not to reach out to customers. No, no, no. They are long past that. They're not that crazy.
This is the last gasp by the media party to get Trudeau to bail them out. Again. Again. <laughs> um, I, I mean, he just threw tens of millions of dollars at them last month in July. But you know what? It's August already. And there's another election coming up. You can better believe Trudeau's going to pony up. I mean, wouldn't you if you were Trudeau? I mean, what's another billion dollars more to throw on the bonfire? In the past, the media had too much self-respect to act like such brazen hussies. They don't anymore, do they? Stay with us for more. Christine, Laura, what you're seeing behind me is one of multiple locations that have been burning in Kenosha, Wisconsin, over the course of the night. A second night since Jacob Blake was seen shot in the back seven times by a police officer. And what you are seeing now, these images came and come in stark contrast to what we saw over the course of the daytime hours in Kenosha and into the early evening, which were largely peaceful demonstrations in the face of law enforcement. It wasn't until night fell that things began to get a little bit more contentious. Things were thrown back and forth. Police started using some of those crowd dispersal tactics like tear gas, even playing uh, very loud sounds to push them out. And then what you are seeing, the common theme that ties all of this together is an expression of anger and frustration over what people feel like has become an all too familiar story. Did you see what was on the screen in that CNN clip? They called it fiery, but mostly peaceful protests. They didn't use the word riot. And they didn't say arson or torture. They said it's fiery, but mostly peaceful. And in the other screen, Missiles, including fireworks, I should tell you, being shot at police. And CNN says, oh, no, this is very mostly peaceful, just incredible, unbelievable. And all this happening in the background as Donald Trump has his Republican Party's convention, which has been very successful in terms of uh, elocuting a positive message. At least that's how it looks to me. And according to audience statistics, Six times more people watching the Republican convention than its Democrat counterpart. Joining us now to talk about this is one of our best Sherpas on American politics, and he's the <laughs> author of the new book, which I recommend. It's called Red November. Will the country vote red for Trump or red for socialism? I'm talking about Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large at Breitbart.com. Joel, great to see you again. You too. I, I like that. I, I'm the Sherpa of conservative analysis. That's great. That means I get to carry all the baggage. You know, I... <laughs> A Sherpa when I was a law student who was driving a taxi in Boston and he told me he was from Nepal and I saw his ID on the visor and his last name was Sherpa and it turned out he came from a family of Sherpas in the Himalayas the, the, the real deal so well that's incredible go. well you are our <laughs> Sherpa because you're helping guide us through these mountain passes well you you will reach the summit I have no doubt well thank you very much um, so much going on. The riots in Kenosha, which is not a big city. It's not a very, it's not a traditionally urban or black city. I, I think it's, it's a pretty small town, regular kind of place, but it has Black Lives Matter style riots that have torched the place. What are your quick thoughts on that? Well, that part of Wisconsin is very interesting. So it's right by the Illinois border. I know it pretty well because I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago. So if you ever drove to Milwaukee or took the train, you went through Kenosha. 
and it has outlet malls. It is a gateway to southern, southwestern Wisconsin. It's about half an hour or so south of Milwaukee. And there are actually some black communities up there. There's a large black community on the Illinois side of the border in the city of Waukegan. And Kenosha has a black community. And also Sturdivant is a town nearby where there's a large black middle class community in a somewhat rural slash suburban area. So the Midwest is not what the coastal stereotype would have you believe. It's actually quite diverse. That district was Paul Ryan's district when he was Speaker of the House, when he was still in Congress. And he made a point of reaching out to the black communities of that region, as well as the Latino communities in the area. So a really interesting part of the country and absolutely spectacularly beautiful in the summertime. It's just a shame that everything is happening as it is. But if it can happen in Kenosha, it can happen anywhere. And the shooting that started it all began uh, on Sunday. J Jacob Blake, age 29, was shot by police in a confrontation. Much was made out of the fact that he was shot in the back, which is true. And he was reported widely as having been unarmed. That turns out not to be true, or very likely not to be true. The eyewitness who recorded the infamous cell phone video said that police were shouting at him to drop the knife, drop the knife. And the state prosecutors have determined after an investigation that he did in fact have a knife with him. It was recovered from the floorboard of the car. And remember, he was shot as he was reaching into the car. He opened the driver's side door and was reaching for something as if on the seat or on the floor. So police were confronted by a man who was very likely armed. He also had scuffled with them before. There's a video from a different angle that shows him fighting with police. And apparently they had attempted to tase him, that is to use non-lethal stun weapons. And they don't work on everybody. Some people escape. Some people just get lucky. The taser misses. It only has a couple of cartridges or a couple of uh, darts in it. So he kept resisting arrest and evading. And that's what led to the situation. Almost all of these bad situations involve people resisting arrest. And whether they're white or black, we, we had a case here in California a few years ago in Fresno, of uh, a white teenager who was shot by police in similar circumstances. Resisting arrest is the common denominator. But the other common denominator in these cases is fake news. And so you have fake news telling everyone that this guy is unarmed and so forth, that he was simply shot by police while he was in his car. You know, all of these false characterizations of, of the circumstances. We were also told that he was simply intervening in a domestic dispute somewhere else. Turns out that the woman who was living at the address to which the police came had actually called the police because he was not supposed to be there. Evidently, there was some history between them. And he had a warrant out for his arrest. He was charged with sexual assault, among other crimes, and the police had been looking for him for almost two months. That, on top of reports in local media that he had a prior arrest for violent behavior involving a gun. So police knew all this. And on that previous occasion, apparently, he had to be subdued with a police dog because he also resisted arrest. So this gentleman, as many other positive qualities as he may have had, had a history of violence and run-ins with the law. And police knew all that, or likely knew all that, when they tried to apprehend him. And all of that, if it were known, if people had waited for the facts, would have taken some of the sensationalism out of the protests. But the first night you had protests, and then you had riots, people looting, people burning. The next morning, Joe Biden put out a statement condemning the police and saying nothing about the violence, nothing about the riots. 
So that evening, Monday night, I don't want to necessarily say there's a causal relationship, although certainly Biden could have at least made the protests seem illegitimate when they became violent. He could have at least urged peaceful protest. He didn't do that. So Monday night, the city basically went up in flames. At least 10 buildings in the downtown area, which is called Uptown, burned to the ground, including a charitable organization, a furniture store, just mom and pop shops, totally torched, looted. And there were reports of gunshots, people starting to bring weapons to some of these protests. On Tuesday, there was an actual shooting or series of shootings. A young fellow has been arrested, a young man from Illinois, 17-year-old fellow, and he was in Kenosha. We're not sure why, but he came and was clearly very into the idea of standing up for the business owners, standing up for the town against the rioters. I caught the fact that he was shown in a Getty Images photograph, not by name, they didn't know who he was, but earlier in the day he had been photographed on the news wires removing graffiti from a public building. So he was clearly there to help out in whatever way he thought he was helping, but he brought his AR-15. I'm not sure if he owned it legally and, you know, good advice generally as whatever his intentions might have been, avoid riots. Nobody's helping by showing up during a riot. The police are there for a reason. And even if the police aren't there, it really isn't your business because if you bring weapons to help people who haven't asked you for their help, apparently, uh, all you're doing is inflating the possibility of danger. And, and he, he seems to be a, a young guy who was very into police. Um, that's the only known ideology we, we really have. He went to a Trump rally, apparently, according to BuzzFeed. There have been all kinds of false reports circulating about him being a white supremacist. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. It could turn out that he is, but there was no evidence of that, at least uh, up until now. And he turns out to, to be a teenager from Illinois. They arrested him uh, in, in Illinois, from Antioch, Illinois. And he got himself into a confrontation. It's not sure who started it. It's not clear who started it. But if you watch the videos, it's clear he's being attacked in both cases where he fired his weapon at someone. Uh, the first person who attacked him, uh, he shot him in the head. Then he started running. Uh, not immediately. It appears he called someone, perhaps the police, and reported that he had shot someone. And then he was chased by a mob. He was viciously attacked. And then he shot one of the attackers dead and shot the other in the arm. The one who was shot in the arm who lost a significant portion of his biceps and his forearm, was holding a pistol, a pistol drawn. So this was not some kind of random mass shooting. The Washington Post described it as shooting into a crowd of people. That's not what happened. This was a confrontation between rioters and an armed person who probably shouldn't have been there and shouldn't have been armed because he had no business standing in front of somebody else's business. Essentially, it was a form of vigilantism. He wasn't looking necessarily, we don't know this, we don't know his motives, he wasn't necessarily looking for someone to shoot, but he was certainly in way over his head. Uh, that's what we seem to, to know so far about the situation. Regardless, the overall truth of this is that Democrats in Wisconsin have allowed the situation to become out of control President Trump, the day before this shooting on Tuesday, offered a full contingent of the National Guard, federal law enforcement. The Democratic governor, Tony Evers, declined. They did accept a couple of hundred, I think 250 National Guard troops, but they only deployed late. And they did not accept, I think, the 1,500 that Trump had offered. The next day, the governor accepted the full contingent of National Guard and federal law enforcement. But that reluctance may have also contributed to the disorder or at least allowed the disorder to go on Tuesday night. Wednesday night, there were more protests. The media described these protests as peaceful. 
just like they described the second night of protest as peaceful. That is to say, the night where things were burnt down. So, in other words, first night, there's sort of uh, protests and riots. Second night, burning a lot of things. Third night, the shootings. And fourth night, last night, Wednesday night, you have protests that are described as peaceful. But although there's no physical confrontations, a synagogue was vandalized, a church was vandalized. Now we're coming to my point. Our media do not understand what peaceful protest is. Peaceful protests aren't just the absence of physical violence. Violence to property, first of all, is violence. It's not peaceful. Secondly, there's a difference between peaceful protest and lawful protest. Now, repressive societies write the laws or apply the laws such that almost no form of protest is allowed. But that's not the kind of society we live in. We live in a society where the government's ability to restrict protest is very, very limited. And so most protests, once they are permitted, will be lawful. The reason you apply for a permit is that you're not the only person with rights. There are other people with rights, rights of freedom of speech, rights of freedom of assembly. We don't want demonstrators and counter demonstrators to encounter each other suddenly. You have to coordinate a large protest with local authorities to make sure that everybody is safe and that everybody's rights are respected. Well, none of these protests are lawful. And in fact, in Wisconsin, there, there's been a curfew after 8 p.m. each of these nights. So the media call them peaceful protests, but they're often held in deliberate violation of the curfew. So this never ends well because the media are morally, uh, indefensibly excusing these anarchist protests, whether they're ideologically anarchist, behaviorally anarchist, they just defy all authority and they show utter contempt for the rights of those in the community around them. These protests are just going on everywhere. And we're supposed to be satisfied merely if nobody gets shot or hurt or there, there's no looting. That's the low standard the media are applying. The civil rights movement didn't work that way. When Martin Luther King led people in the streets or led people at lunch counter demonstrations and sit-ins and that sort of thing, the theme was nonviolence. And that meant that you could not do anything destructive. And that was the power of the protest, that when people were arrested or when they were beaten by police or attacked by police dogs or sprayed with water hoses, it was clear the violence was being done to them for the simple uh, fact that they were expressing themselves. They were exercising their rights. The reason that was so effective was people saw that on television and recoiled in horror and immediately felt sympathy and empathy for the civil rights protesters. And that changed the minds of an entire generation. And that's what peaceful protest is. None of these protests has been peaceful. Yeah. None of them, because they've not followed the law. And, and the Democrats know this. They know the difference. They spoke very eloquently at John Lewis's funeral last month about Satyagraha, the, the philosophy of nonviolent protest and all of that. And yet, th this is where we are today. Yeah. You're, so it's like Gandhi and his protests. It only works when the people you're protesting against have high ethics and high morals, and you're sort of showing their own conduct is against their own ethics. I mean, Gandhi only works against the British Empire. Gandhi doesn't work against the Soviet Union, the Nazis, or Mao. And, right. and I think the same thing with the American civil rights movement in the past. It worked precisely because they were appealing to the better angels of American sentiment, ethics, and ideals. Here, there's no such thing with the gratuitous, lustful violence of the left. And I, I know you've got to run really quickly, but let me show you a clip from the same CNN, Don Lemon, when he started to realize that maybe these riots aren't quite having the political effect he wishes they had, and now he's a little worried that they're hurting the Joe Bidens of the world. Here, take a quick look at this. I do think that 
uh, this, what you said, what's happening in Kenosha is a Rorschach test for the entire country. And I think this is a blind spot for Democrats. I think Democrats are ignoring this problem or hoping that it will go away. And it's not going to go away. And so, unless someone comes up with a solution over the next 73 days or 70 so, however many days. 68 days. 68 days. So it's not going to, the, the problem is not going to be fixed by then. But what they can do, and I think maybe Joe Biden may be afraid to do it. I'm not sure. Maybe he won't. Maybe he is. He's got to address it. He's got to come out and talk about it. I think that's another way of saying that the focus groups are showing uh, severely normal Americans, moderate Americans, even Democrat leaners, they're appalled by this violence and the fact that Joe Biden will take a knee and wait three days before saying anything about burning Kenosha. Yeah, the polls are terrible. And, and keep in mind, Don Lemon said that with uh, fewer than uh, less than 24 hours after that clip you showed in the beginning of CNN trying to tell all of these uh, say that all these protests with, with you know, with with flames behind him, they're all peaceful. Um, the polls must be terrible and Democrats are quickly losing control of the narrative. The fact is they had four days during their convention to condemn the riot, the violence, to condemn the riots, and they didn't do so. Biden waited three days to condemn the riots in Kenosha. They have lost the public on this and they're starting to panic. And you're seeing the New York Times and CNN starting to raise the alarm. The New York Times saying that we've already seen shift in uh, voting uh, behavior, or at least a shift, shift in opinion among voters in Wisconsin in response to all this, because they feel the Democrats can't control it. So Biden and the Democrats were hoping people would vote for them to calm everything down. Now Biden and the Democrats look like they're the ones who are uh, keeping everything going and uh, keeping the riots going, keeping the violence going. And so uh, Trump is the only person who can calm things down. And, and, and I'll have to leave you there, but we'll watch the fourth night of the convention with interest. Joel Pollack, senior editor-at-large for Breitbart.com. Thank you for your time, my friend. Appreciate you joining us. Thank you. There you have it. Thank May you. I encourage you to get Joel's book. It's called Red November. Will the country vote red for Trump or red for socialism? And it couldn't be more topical and hot than it is. Stay with us. More ahead. On my monologue on the Republican National Convention, Andrea writes, A huge difference, in my opinion, from the Democrat Convention was that the Republicans are not in victimhood mode. They are proud to be American, and we're open about it. Thanks for showing these clips, Ezra. Yeah, not in victimhood mode. And I saw, I think it was Frank Luntz, the, the pollster, who noted that the message is so much more positive. It wasn't even attacking the Democrats. Like, you can be positive about the country, but negative about your opponents. This was just positive messaging, happy, building, prosperous, safety, multicultural. Like it was positive messages. It wasn't even attack, attack, attack. So not only were they proud Americans, but they weren't even dignifying the Democrats with attacks. I think people can see the riots and get the, the Democrat point of view themselves. On Sheila and Keen getting accredited to work at the Alberta legislature, Rudy writes, Many congrats to you guys. Good for you. This is only the beginning of greater things to come. Keep up the good work. I was very excited about it, and hopefully we will have more Freedom in the Press victories. It's just sort of sad that we have to fight in the court of law to be able to do our journalism in the court of public opinion. 
Like I just thought we were starting a journalism company when we started Rebel News. I didn't think we'd have to spend tens of thousands of dollars a month fighting for the right to do journalism through lawyers and bodyguards. Doc writes, well, congrats, but they'll still try to stop your truth somehow, I imagine. I'm afraid you could be correct. Um, it'll be very interesting to me to see how the other journalists treat Sheila and Keene, if they're petty, abusive, negative. Um, I mean, this is just like high school folks. The little mean girls club voted to ban Sheila and Keen, but the principal came and said, no, you don't. So let's see if the mean girls are still as petty as ever. I unfortunately think they will be. We'll see. It's funny, though, because Post Media has ordered their journalists in Edmonton just to shut up about all this stuff. It was a great embarrassment to the company, especially Tyler Dotson, who was forced to resign from the press gallery by his employer, National Post. It'll be interesting to see if he vents his rage at our people. I hope he doesn't, but who knows. That's our show for today. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom.